Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. When you picture a Civil War battle in your mind, you most likely see long lines of soldiers in two-rank close-order formations shooting en masse at the enemy standing in a similar formation. But some soldiers operated independently, shooting at specific targets instead of whole units. What was the role of the sharpshooter on the battlefield, and how effective were they? We'll put these and other questions to Professor Timothy Orr, author of the essay, Sharpshooters Made a Grand Record This Day, Combat on the Skirmish Line at Gettysburg on July 3rd. And we'll do that tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, uh, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio headquarters annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina the hometown of East Carolina University, where my day job takes place, but not speaking for ECU or anyone else. Uh, Tonight, as any other night, this is the first show of season number 16. We started uh, back in 2004, now it's 2019. I think I have the years, right? Maybe it's 15. Uh, It'll be a 15th anniversary coming up in a month, and Uh, We'll tell you all about that when we get to October of 2019. Meanwhile, uh, much to say about what's been going on here in Greenville over the past uh, several months, but we'll save that for next week and move ahead with our our show. It's been a long uh, drought of not doing live shows, and I'm glad to be back. Hope you're glad to be back listening. We have a lot of great shows, uh, great guests lined up for the semester ahead. Next week, Jonathan Steplick uh, presents his book, Fighting Means Killing, Civil War Soldiers and the Nature of Combat. Uh, The week after that, September 11th, uh, Gib Kennedy will be talking about the Civil War letters of 
Baron Bobo Foster and his family up through 1863. On the 18th of September, a friend of the show, Jack Dempsey, returns. He's been on before. He's got a new book about Alpheus S. Williams, a a much underappreciated Civil War general. So we'll learn about him and we'll round out the month of September with Uh, Exposing Slavery, Photography, Human Bondage, and the Birth of Modern Visual Politics in America. Matthew Fox Amato is the author of that. Uh, See if you can get a copy in advance because it's a a book with pictures. We'll be talking about images. Uh, Lots more coming up. You can always keep track of what we're doing on the show through impedimentsofwar.org, the website. You can also go to the Facebook page. Both of these are maintained by Mark Gaffney. Thanks to him for all the effort he does in helping us get to another season here of Civil War Talk Radio. I want to put in a quick plug. Uh, In September 2019, next month, it'll be the uh, annual Civil War Roundtable Conference coming up. Uh, you don't want to miss that if you have any involvement with your local Civil War roundtable, and you, you probably should. Uh, this will be meeting in St. Louis, Missouri, Friday through Sunday, the September 20th through 22nd. Uh, lots of events where people will share best practices on how to make uh, your Civil War roundtable more interesting, more vibrant, draw more people uh, more interesting speakers, all the things that we look for in this. Well, tonight, uh, as as you know, if you looked at our Facebook or web page or website, we were supposed to have Professor William Glenn Robertson come on to talk about the Battle of Chickamauga, uh, the first volume of his his work on that campaign. And uh, I've been reading it in preparation for tonight, and it's excellent. Uh, Unfortunately, he's ill and can't be here, so in reserve steps Professor Timothy Orr of Old Dominion University with an interview that he and I conducted at the Civil War Institute this past uh, summer in Gettysburg, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, at Gettysburg College. Uh, uh, Tim Orr has done a lot of things in Civil War history. Uh, Just one of them is the essay I mentioned in the introduction about sharpshooters at Gettysburg. He and I talked about that and many other things. And uh, I hope you'll enjoy listening to this as I will. Uh, So we'll go back in time to June 2019, talk with Professor Timothy Orr, and I'll be back with you live again next week uh, for uh, the continuation of our new season of Civil War Talk Radio. So I turn to Engineer A-Rod and say, go ahead, press the button, and we'll talk with Professor Orr. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Professor Timothy J. Orr of Old Dominion University. Uh, This 
interview is being recorded at the Civil War Institute in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania in June 2019. We are talking today about the place where we're sitting. We're in the headquarters right now of the Civil War Institute, so we're on the campus of Gettysburg College, which means we're literally on the battlefield at this moment. Uh, Tim, I mentioned in the introduction something about your background. You, uh, you were a student here originally, is that right? Yeah, I was, class of 2001. So uh, 2001, a mere child, that makes you. Um, the, the 21st century, a millennial. I'm sure you're eager to hear lots of uh, old people perspectives on millennials, so uh, I'll, I can fill the next hour with that, but I won't. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> my daughters hate that stuff. Um, the, uh, uh, w tell us about your, your background from there. After uh, undergrad, what did you do next? Yeah, after undergraduate, I went directly into graduate school. Uh, so I joined the uh, Richard Civil War Era Center at the Penn State University, mm -hmm. right? and that's where I did my master's and my PhD work. And once that was finished, I was hired by Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, where I'm currently the military uh, historian. And But you also worked here at Gettysburg at, at the, the battlefield. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's true. So for eight consecutive summers, I worked as a seasonal ranger at Gettysburg National Military Park. This so, while you were in graduate school or teaching or both? Uh, both. So I started during my undergraduate years at Gettysburg College, and I mm -hmm. continued that into my graduate years. And so I would do uh, tours out on the battlefield, you know, help run the visitor center and the cyclorama building, which was existed at the time, and mm -hmm. easily the best job I've ever had in my life uh, to get out on the park and to walk the grounds with people who were excited to be here and to learn about the battle. Uh, you could not ask for a, a better summer job. It, it does sound absolutely like the best thing one could do for, for a person with a Civil War interest. Uh, looking at your record, uh, your CV, one thing stood out that I wanted to ask before we start talking about Gettysburg, which is the Battle of Midway. Uh, in uh, what how, Your last book, after a career of Civil War scholarship, is on a World War II topic, and we're not going to discuss Midway today. We'll have to start uh, World War II talk radio to do that. But uh, what brought you to writing something so far out of your field? Well, I think it was when I moved to Norfolk. So um, Norfolk is, of course, sort of the Navy capital of the world, right? So the largest U.S. naval base is, is there. And when I got to Norfolk, I wanted to, I don't know, get the lay of the land and learn a little bit of naval history. And Hampton Roads, uh, where Norfolk is situated, uh, is also home to some very large shipyards, Newport News Shipbuilding and Dry Dock, and they built the aircraft carriers that are used in the June 1942 Battle of Midway. And so from there, it just sort of expanded. And we, me and my wife, wrote a book together called Never Call Me a Hero. Uh, and it is a memoir of the very, uh, one of the last Navy pilots from that battle, uh, uh, Jack Dusty Cleese. And he kind of got in contact with us through our connections to um, what's known as the Battle of Midway Roundtable, but it was an excellent project we did. Uh, very different than doing anything with the Civil War, because when you uh, study the Civil War, you have letters uh, from long-dead individuals, and you have to interpret them. Uh, we were working with a live subject who had his own opinions on things, and in many ways it was a much harder project because of that. 
It's interesting. Uh, Craig Simon's most recent book is on uh, World War II Navy, and mm -hmm. he has written about uh, Operation Neptune and so on, but his career before that was Civil War-based. Uh, Lincoln and his Admirals is a classic work. Uh, and it, it strikes me that it's not that unusual for people in the Civil War community to deviate. Uh, in, in Earlier this month, June of 2019, I led a tour to Normandy for the 75th anniversary, which was outside of Civil War work, and, and I found it you know, stimulating to look at a different conflict, and, and certainly there are comparisons to draw, but uh, it didn't move me to, to shifting gears altogether. Do you see yourself staying in the Civil War field primarily? I do. I do. I, I mean, the Civil War was my first love. Mm -hmm. uh, I think when you become, you build yourself as a military historian, mm -hmm. you have to be more than just a one-trick pony. You have to have another conflict or two that you're an expert in. Mm -hmm. And and I think World War II Navy is kind of my my new love, right? And mm -hmm. so I don't think it'll supplant the old one. It'll just sort of uh, make it better. The idea of doing military history is an interesting one uh, because a lot of universities don't have military history as a uh, certainly not as a department, sometimes not even as a concentration within the history area. Uh, I'm fortunate to teach at East Carolina where we have a two-course sequence in American military history. We have multiple courses, uh, but that's unusual. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you are actually billed as uh, teaching military history. That's correct. How, how does that work at ODU? Um, how does it work in terms of like that, that, being labeled that or well let me start with that do, do your colleagues ever give you the eye that oh he's the guy who just does wars and battles no no I, I don't get any sort of prejudice uh, from my colleagues my colleagues are, are excellent uh, they're, they're very supportive and and you know they, they encourage me to, to follow my own path in terms of what I want to research uh, so I've never had any sort of you know, anti-military history prejudice. Uh, I am aware that it exists at other institutions, and they've attempted to delete military history from their curriculum. And I think it's to their detriment if they do that, because, you know, whatever you think about it as a, a subfield, it is without a doubt one of the pieces of history that tends to draw the most people in, mm. right? Uh, a lot of people join or get excited by history and their gateway drug is military history mm -hmm. and then once they realize there are other disciplines and subfields uh, that you can explore through history then the other members of the faculty get the, the benefits of that uh, so uh, it always perplexes me that some departments want to get rid of it and um, hopefully uh, they will eventually see the light I, I wonder I mean, Nationally, history major enrollments have been declining in the last year or so, and uh, it does seem that universities would want to do anything they could to keep those enrollments up, and cutting military history wouldn't be a smart way to do that. I'm wondering if perhaps we've even passed that era where the prejudice against military history that was much stronger in the late 20th century, 1980s, uh, 90s perhaps, has, has diminished and, and it's going away. But we're here to talk about Gettysburg and we're going to do that. We're going to take a short break first, come back, talk with our guest, Timothy J. Orr. I'm Jerry Prokopovich and this is Civil War Talk Radio. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Timothy J. Orr, expert on the Battle of Gettysburg, former park ranger, uh, now professor at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. In our first segment, we talked a little bit about uh, military history, and, and Tim, we talked about some of your other adventures, but Gettysburg is what we're here to discuss. Uh, as we record this here in, in June of 2019 at the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, last night you led a tour of the wheat field focusing on uh, Barnes Division in the Fifth Corps, and I uh, went on that tour. Uh, there were multiple tours offered at, at that time, and I chose to go hear what you had to say, and it was a fascinating tour. Uh, the first question I want to ask you about this is, how do you approach giving battlefield tours to an audience like this one as opposed to an audience when you're a park ranger that's made up of, of families, of, of tourists? as opposed to leading a staff ride of military professionals. Uh, there are many different people I'm, I'm sure you've taken on battlefield tours. How do you tailor your approach? Yeah, I mean, I think you always consider the audience. That is the first thing to do. But um, I think no matter what you're doing, there are some basic uh, rules to follow. And these were um, you know, given to me when I was with the Park Service is that number one, you, you always use the resource to your advantage, you know, and, and when you're on the battlefield, the resource is the park itself. So when you're doing a battlefield tour, you always go to the spot that something happens because the only way you're going to be truly able to see and interpret the events is by being there. And so the more you can use the resource, the better it is for your interpretive approach. Uh, and the other thing is always to focus on intangibles as opposed to tangibles. Uh, and what this means is, uh, you know, focus on kind of human emotion more than some of the tactical details. And then that kind of human emotion is the thing that really connects people to the place. And then from there, you can, you can make these larger esoteric arguments about, you know, what the generals did and who was right and wrong. But as long as you, you, you start off with a basic human emotion, whether it be fear, courage, cowardice, um, sacrifice, things that all humans can relate to, um, then it really helps out. Now, when you are choosing audiences based on you know, certain uh, demographics, uh, you can, like for an audience like at the Civil War Institute, I try to give them some new things because a lot of these individuals come here expecting something new. So you, you give them uh, a few spots that, they, that the visitors have rarely been. And then if you're doing something with um, army officers for a staff ride, there you kind of tailor it to decisions that are made, right? So you want them to focus on how the decision is made because that is going to help them in the future. 
And so uh, there's often there's all sorts of ways you can uh, shift the talk so it conforms to the audience's needs. But I think deep down, it's always about these rules of you know using the resource and focusing on the intangible qualities. The uh, the the stereotype of for me the the dull battlefield tour is the the guide who knows all the minutiae who can tell you what year each monument was put up for example uh, or the West Point class of each officer at each site but doesn't do anything with that it's just trivial detail uh, knowing when the monuments were put up you know obviously can weave into a story of why were you know who put them up and why mm. and why at that time and not sooner or later uh, so how how and you did quite a bit of that last night. You you talked about political issues behind the war. You brought in mm. bigger questions. It wasn't just who shot who at what point. Right. Um, that seems to me always a challenge. And the, the interface between academic and, and popular or public mm. history, and and uh, I'm sure you encounter that in your classes as well as on battlefields. Yeah, you don't want to tell the same old story, right? Mm -hmm. So I always think that the other thing you do at each stop is you kind of widen the discussion a little bit uh, to make them think about, you know, the connection that the battle has to the larger picture of the war. Because otherwise it is, as you said, just a story of who shot who at each, each stop, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that tale can get old after a while. So, you know, for instance, in the Barnes Division battle walk at the one stop we talked about, um, conservative soldiers and the love of McClellan. Mm -hmm. um, at another stop, we talked about the removal of the dead and, mm -hmm. and the, the care of the wounded. Uh, at another stop, we talked about the political fallout in the newspapers and mm -hmm. the consequences of what went on in the wheat field. And so it makes you kind of understand the Civil War, uh, how all-encompassing it is mm -hmm. that, you know, it's uh, events at Gettysburg, they ripple through families, they ripple through headlines, they ripple through politics, and there's so much that is connected to this battlefield. Mm -hmm. And again, I think it leads us back to our, our story of military history, that military history now is much more than it had been in the yeah. 20th century, before it was all guns and trumpets, and mm -hmm. now we are living in the age what we call the new military history, where you see the way that military history cross-cuts with other subfields, and so you can connect religious history, gender history, um, social, urban history, um, local, rural history, whatever, to the battlefield of Gettysburg, to any Civil War battlefield, and you can see that there are very strong connections between military history and all the subfields that surround it. The, uh, I think Russ Wigley's collection, New Dimensions in Military History, that sort of started that movement, is now uh, shockingly over 50 years old. Yeah. <laughs> it's been that long that we've been calling it the new military history. Yeah. But it, while maybe new is no longer the right adjective, that is absolutely the case. That, that uh, My thought on it was this is what the men wrote about in, in their old age, what they wrote their memoirs about, certainly mm -hmm. what they wrote their letters home about. At the end of their lives, the one thing they didn't remember was you know, transitions in economic class or uh, race relations or any other things that are truly that are truly important. They did remember those 15 minutes at Gettysburg in 1863, uh, and if they thought they were so important, then it seems we as historians ought to take them at their word. Yeah, it, and I guess that's sort of the the difficulty of the Civil War is that there's so many alluring factors about it. 
uh, and most specifically, as we talked about, the transition of slavery to freedom, mm-hmm. right? It is a it's a big moment in world history. It right. is difficult to lose sight of. But at the same time, you do have to always remember that probably the most important thing that happens during the war is that 620,000 people die, right? Yeah, they and, say 750,000. Yeah, yeah. so some, some people have, 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, whatever number that you like, right. it, it is, is incredible, incredible for the, that generation. And the one thing we can be certain about is that at one point we all die. And, you know, that is easily the, the biggest abuse that war heaps upon us is the ending of human life. And sometimes we can be caught up in these other issues, but we always have to return to it. This is what war does. Uh, and if we, we lose sight of that, I think we kind of lose sight of humanity. I mean, keeping us on the topic of, of uh, the tour that you gave yesterday of Barnes Division in the wheat field, uh, as every good uh, battlefield leader does, you stop to ask for questions periodically. I did not ask any questions because I wanted to leave room for other guests to do that, and, and time is always short. There's always a tension between, are there any questions, and the one person with seven questions. Right, right, right. Is ready to move <laughs> that on. always happens, but, you know. So I didn't ask you, so I'm going to ask you now um, some, some uber geek questions uh, that, would, that don't fit the new military history. At one point, uh, we spent a lot of time on the Stony Hill, mm-hmm. the, the hill just west of the wheat field. When I read Kershaw's description, uh, his OR report years ago, the editor in the collection I was reading said there was debate over what he meant by the Stony Hill, mm-hmm. that uh, there was some controversy whether that was the hill we were on yesterday or whether it was Hawks Ridge, the next stony hill mm-hmm. uh, had or even little round time uh, based on what we saw yesterday the evidence is overwhelming that it had to be where we were how was there ever any controversy about that do you, do you recall hearing anything to that effect yeah i mean i think the controversy was kind of minor what he meant by it mm-hmm. and it, it, it's one of those strange moments in history where an unnamed terrain feature is named about 20 years after the battle by mm-hmm. um one one officer and that name mm-hmm. the name sort of sticks right mm-hmm. and then you have to identify well what is he talking about right yeah and so the stony hill is this little plot of, of, of ground wooded and rocky west of the wheat fields on the george rose farm uh and I, yeah i don't know how people could question it but you have to remember that there was at some point a moment where there was no larger history of the battle of gettysburg mm-hmm. and you know, this is the problem. Well, actually, a good thing about Gettysburg is that there is so much written about it that you know historians can easily go to common expressions or common denominators, and they know exactly what that is. Mm-hmm. So, if you were to say the high water mark of the Confederacy, you know you're talking about the center of Cemetery Ridge, mm-hmm. and so there's a language that has been built up that describes the Battle of Gettysburg, and the Stony Hill is one of them, mm-hmm. and it was invented by you know General. Uh, Joseph Kershaw, you know, for his article for Century Magazine that eventually becomes part of the Battles and Leaders series. So um, that's very helpful. And then in comparison, when you look at battles that have never been written about, uh, there is no such language, and you're, you're really trying to figure it out. So back in the 1870s and 1880s, when historians are for the first time trying to determine what these locations are, they have no idea. Mm-hmm. So there are probably many guesses. And now we've had, you know, 
one book for every like minute of fighting at, at, <laughs> at Gettysburg. Right. So um, it, it's it's very different now. The the historiography, the history of the history, has reached such a, a point that you know we reach consensus. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what history does. The more you the more you write about it, the more you start to figure out what what is closer to the truth. One place we haven't reached consensus or that, that still receives surprisingly little attention is are, are the actual tactical evolutions of regiments in battle. And another controversy involving Barnes Division you discussed yesterday was uh, when uh, another division came forward to relieve uh, Barnes Division, that meant one unit had to pass through another uh, mm-hmm. to get to the front. and. Uh, Patty Griffith, in, in his work, talked about this, the passage of lines mm-hmm. maneuver, which was uh, uh, something troops from the Napoleonic era forward rehearsed. Uh, and, and in Griffith's argument, it was, it was a fraught moment when one unit tries to pass through another, there's every possibility of confusion, you mm-hmm. end up in the wrong unit, the two units both lose their cohesion. So it was difficult to do. and. I find myself looking for examples of passage of lines in Civil War battles, and you don't find too many of them. Uh, but here's an example of one, and according to at least one account, Barnes men lay down so that the unit behind could pass over them mm-hmm. with no risk of the two intermingling and then stood up again. Is that what happened? Was that, was that it's supposed to be a passage of lines? Yeah, I mean, my opinion is that is exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the controversy that arises mm-hmm. from it is that the men of Barnes' division uh, that laid down said that it didn't happen. And I cannot imagine how it couldn't have, right? If it, if it was, because by all accounts, it was a, a passage of lines that was done quickly and without any confusion whatsoever. Most of what we think it's General uh, Zook's brigade that mm-hmm. comes up behind them at the Trossel Woods. And Zook's men aren't expecting to find any Union troops in front of them. But there's Barnes men, and Barnes men just simply lie prone as the other line passes over them, and that's actually the best solution for exactly. that, that situation. But the problem is there is some sort of I don't know association attached to that. That if you if you lie down and let troops go over you, you are n- not being as brave as you should be, right? Mm-hmm. And that you are cowering in the rear, and that is the implication that comes out in the post-war era that uh, Barnes men are are hunkered down because they are trying to stay out of the fight. And, uh, you know, one of the crazier letters is from one of the brigade commanders, Colonel Tilton. Uh, Tilton, you know, the, the first indication has come where Barnes men have, are accused of lying down is in uh, an article in the New York Herald in March of 1864. It's uh, written by an anonymous author named Historicus. That's what he calls himself. And when Tilton reads this, he writes a letter to his commander, General Barnes, and he says, how could this happen? This is absurd, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we would never lie down and let troops march over us. And I'm not sure how Tilton could deny that this happened, because it almost certainly did happen, because the only way you could pass lines between each other is by one of them lying down, the other yeah. going forward. So... Uh, clearly, even what seems obvious to me as a historian, uh, one of the guys who was there said it did not happen. And so that's, the, again, the whole trick of history is like his perspective is, is very different. And there's probably a logical reason for it. I just haven't hit on what that is. 
I mean, the idea of, of lying down in battle when other troops are standing up and going forward, one, one can see the association, negative mm -hmm. associations with that. But it also seems like a very disciplined and orderly thing to do, yeah. uh, a highly trained thing to do, and then you spring back to your feet and resume the fight. Uh, very, very curious how that got argued out. The the Historicus letter leads to the issue of memory, which is, has been a, a hot topic for Civil War historians for uh, a decade, if not two now. And you talked about that on, on our tour last night, how there was bad feeling after the battle. In some ways, Barnes' division never recovered its historical reputation after the fight in the wheat field, even though you know, they suffered enormous casualties, mm -hmm. uh, as, as one can see from the record. Uh, they weren't. They, they didn't run from the field. They didn't flee, and yet somehow they came away with a bad, uh, a bad taste. Yeah, and it's very unfortunate for that division because it is one of the best divisions in the Army of the Potomac. You know, it fights splendidly at the Battle of the Wilderness a few months later in 1864. You know, it's there at the end in 1865 to help um, accept the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia. So it's one of the, the best and most storied divisions. But the thing is, in the memory of the Civil War, it's all about what you did at Gettysburg, mm -hmm. right? And that division has a poor reputation for what it did at the wheat field. So this one kind of bad moment that it has sticks with it for the rest of the veterans' lives. And they have to kind of explain what they did at Gettysburg. And, you know, it's not near as, as glorious as some of the other stories that, that take place. Uh, so, yeah, it is all about memory. And the, the amazing thing about this story is that it's not memory that this simply surfaces like 10, 20 years later. Mm -hmm. This is memory that is being forged during the war itself. Uh, so most likely the culprit is General Dan Sickles. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, of course, a man who was surrounded by controversy all his life. But after that, the battle was over, he attempted to kind of explain his decision to move out to the Peach Orchard, Nemesburg Road line, and he had uh, partisans in the press. The New York Herald was really his newspaper, and they started writing, um, let, you know, accounts that defended Sickles and his decision. And the only way they could really effectively do it was by running down other generals and other units. And General Barnes was a target, his men were a target. And the argument that um, was associated with Barnes was that if Barnes and his men had stood with Sickles' Third Corps for longer, the position would have been held. And because Barnes gives way, it made the, the position untenable, and therefore the Third Corps collapsed, not because Sickles had put it in a bad position, but because other troops did not offer necessary support. It is amazing how, uh, how frequently everything at Gettysburg does come back to Dan Sickles, uh, one thinks he would have liked that. Uh, I imagine he. I imagine he did. He did. <laughs> uh, somewhere right now, he says, "Oh, they're doing an interview about me again." Yep. This is great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the um, another tactical element that doesn't get written a great deal about is the use of sharpshooters or skirmishers in the Civil War, and indeed, these are not the same thing, but. Uh, but neither one gets a great deal of, of press. You've written an essay on this topic that was uh, published in a uh, uh, in a National Park Service publication 
uh, let me get the exact title so I get it right. Uh, Sharpshooters made a grand record this day. Combat on the skirmish line at Gettysburg on July 3rd. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was published in a, 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 the result of a seminar. What I want to do is take another short break right now, come back and talk with you about sharpshooters and skirmishers at Gettysburg and elsewhere. Uh, our guest today is Timothy J. Orr, professor at Old Dominion University and a, a person long familiar with the Gettysburg battlefield. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Professor Timothy J. Orr of Old Dominion University on the Gettysburg Battlefield at the Civil War Institute in June 2019. We've been talking about the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, specifically the uh, adventures and misadventures of General James Barnes' uh, division of the Fifth Corps in the Wheatfield on the second day, a very specific topic, uh, one which Professor Orr gave a, a wonderful uh, battlefield tour about uh, here at the Civil War Institute. Uh, part of the Institute involves going out on tours not just to Gettysburg but other battlefields in uh, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland. Uh, if, if you've never been, uh, find yourself a way to come out here to Civil War Institute uh, next year or the year after. So we've been talking about the uh, the uh, activities of the Barnes Division, and one factor that uh, you talked a little bit about yesterday, but that you've also written about in some detail, is the role of, of sharpshooters and skirmishers in the Civil War. Uh, let me start by asking, uh, what are the difference between these two, and uh, then move on to why don't we know more about them? But first, what, 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 let's, let's get definitions on the table. Right. Now, yeah, and the tricky thing is they can overlap a little bit, right? But a skirmisher is essentially uh, a soldier that is sent out as kind of a feeler in front of the main body. Uh, so it's a fighting formation that is a single rank deep with each soldier five to ten paces apart from his nearest file partner. Uh, and typically regiments uh, of cavalry and infantry deploy as skirmishers merely to make contact with the enemy. So uh, if you imagine in your mind's eye the typical fighting formation of an infantry line, two ranks of battle, shoulder to shoulder, that engages uh, in kind of the lion's share of the fighting. But before that, you always send out skirmishers so you know the enemy's position. That's like the last little bit of intelligence gathering that an army will do before contact. And so skirmishers, they can take advantage of the terrain, they can hide behind rocks and trees and kind of uh, make their shots count, delay the enemy so that the main line of infantry can get in position in those last few minutes before the battle is joined. Uh, 
A sharpshooter, however, is something a little different. Those are soldiers who are specially trained to be long-range marksmen, what we would today call a sniper. And they usually operate in skirmish formation, because that's the, the best use of them. Uh, but they can also kind of operate independently uh, with kind of like spotter shooter teams. And their main goal is to try to pick off the enemy and kill them from long range to aim at signal corps stations, uh, artillery units, enemy officers, anything to confuse or complicate the enemy's prosecution of the battle. So both uh, sharpshooters and skirmishers are aiming at individuals. They're trying to kill people. Mm -hmm. Uh, that doesn't seem like a shocking thing during a war. That, that in the 21st century, you know, that's what war is, trying yeah. to kill the enemy. But uh, Dave Grossman, in his book on killing, makes the argument that one reason we see so many accounts where a regiment levels its muskets, fires at enemy ranks 50 yards away, the smoke clears, and the enemy are still standing there, mm -hmm. uh, that, that you'd think they would all have been shot. And, yeah. and, and Grossman argues that there's a natural human aversion to killing, that people, unless they're conditioned otherwise, simply don't want to take human life, and that soldiers might intentionally fire high, or at least not, not aim at a specific target. Mm -hmm. The men you're talking about, they're aiming at specific targets. Yeah. Um, this doesn't comport with what Grossman says is human nature, or, or even with how people thought of war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing. The Civil War is a time period where people don't want to admit to killing. Uh, I read a wonderful letter once from a soldier in the 20th Maine who uh, he came across a Confederate soldier at point-blank range, and he said he just he had to shoot, and so he fired, and he killed this man, and you know, right to the head, knocked his hat off, and everything. And he wrote um, a message to his family that this had happened, and he says at the end of it, "Don't breathe a word about this." You know, because people don't want to admit that they have taken a life. And so that's the thing about the majority of Civil War soldiers is that they could um, kind of square their duty with their religion. Mm -hmm. Nearly all of them were Christian, of course. And so they, um, they could say that they adhered to the commandment, thou shalt not kill, because they never knew if they killed anyone. You know, they, they just simply followed orders. They volley fired and, or were simply firing at will into the smoke. Uh, because that was the way you damaged the enemy was by the volume of your firepower. You never knew if your individual shot killed anyone. Mm -hmm. Sharpshooters are very different. They know when they, they, they kill. Some of them use telescopic rifles. They can see their target, and they can uh, snuff the life out. And so one of the things I often argue about the Civil War is it is a war that shows the maturation of the United States Army because this is a period where sharpshooters are used in a more expansive way. Uh, they're not always welcomed by either friendly or enemy units because of the um, implication of what they are. But by the end of the war, these specialist units are integrated into the, the ranks of the U.S. Army, which I think shows a maturity of the Army. They now kind of realize that, yeah, you have to kill and you have to have people trained to do it. Uh, so luckily there were a number of individuals out there, especially in the U.S. Army, that really wanted to uh, propel the development of specialized sharpshooter regiments, and that they, they have their um, their advent in the Civil War, and they really prove themselves. 
I mean, the, the this does evolve over the course of the war. You can go back to Gerald Linderman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, un, was it uh, Undying Courage? Uh, Embattled Courage. Embattled Courage, yeah. that was the name. Embattled uh, Courage that, that uh, by the end of the war, troops are, are taking life deliberately mm-hmm. and, and, and preserving their own life deliberately. Yeah. They're not standing up in the open anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or Mark Grimsley's Hard Hand of War. That, that lots of people made the, the very clear argument, the war gets worse as it goes mm-hmm. on. Um, is it, one can question if it's a better thing um, to, to move war in this direction. Uh, I recall reading an account outside of Nashville of uh, some Confederate cavalry shooting a Union camp guard, mm-hmm. and the, the Union officer writing to his counterpart, this is wanton murder. Mm-hmm. This, there was no battle taking place. There's yeah. no point in simply taking a life in the midst of peace uh, between the two armies. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, of course, you know, war is war. And even mm-hmm. by 1864, Petersburg, you know, a camp guard can't poke his head up and be yeah. safe. Is, is that a good thing? Well, I mean, I, I don't think you can compare kind of long-range sniping mm-hmm. to, you know, kind of what might easily be kill, uh, termed as the killing of prisoners, right? Mm-hmm. Or that's, you know, men, men who surrender. I, I don't think anyone, different. anyone kind of thought that, you know, killing a sentry kind of on duty was the same as, as shooting, uh, you know, an officer who's leading troops right. you know, mm-hmm. from long range. Uh, but you know, but you are right that it, at the time, people had uneasy feelings about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was once even a moment where uh, a Union officer kind of described one of the first Union sharpshooter regiments as as spiders out there to snatch a hungry <laughs> fly, and it was not a flattering no. description of what they were. But I think overall, um, you know, sharpshooter regiments prove useful, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's not so much that they take human life, but the human lives that they take are important ones mm-hmm. uh, that complicate the enemy's ability to wage war, right? So they can f- they're, uh, they can fix them in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, very famously, this is uh, what is done during the Peninsula Campaign, mm-hmm. where McClellan's grand scheme for breaking through the Confederate line um, between Yorktown and the Warwick River is to get his artillery in place to bombard the Confederate line, but he can't do this because the Confederate gunners are going to stop his engineers from digging the gun pits for his mortars. So the way to counteract this is deploy a Union sharpshooter regiment along the entire front. And for a whole month, the month of April 1862, about 100 Union sharpshooters are firing at the Confederates. They're not necessarily killing everyone, but they're keeping their heads down. Mm-hmm. So the fear that they, they uh, you know, put into the Confederates is really what matters. Mm-hmm. So the Confederate gunners cannot load their artillery, and that allows McClellan to to dig in, gets his mortars in place, and then uh, as of the first week of May 1862, the Confederate commander, Joseph Johnston, knows that he has to retreat. Mm-hmm. And so he actually withdraws without a fight. And so, in effect, uh, those Union sharpshooters almost save lives. Uh, instead of being a, a massive bombardment and a frontal mm-hmm. assault, as McClellan had planned, uh, the Confederates just simply give way because they know that uh, McClellan has them has them dead to rights with all the artillery. And so the sharpshooters play an important role. And that's actually, the, I think, the, the real moment where they, they kind of prove themselves mm-hmm. is that they have a small role that has large strategic consequences for the Yorktown Peninsula campaign. Because in, in an open battle, uh, 
the sharpshooters and skirmishers both give way to the, the main force units, mm -hmm. the, the two deep lines that advance. But you write uh, in this essay on, on sharpshooters and, and skirmishers at, at Gettysburg that we all know the story of Pickett's Charge, we all know about the attacks on July 2nd by Longstreet's uh, two divisions, but you point out that after the second day is fighting, uh, on the third day, both before and after Pickett's Charge, the two armies are in contact mm -hmm. along the whole length of, of the fish hook, and other than the moment when the bombardment is taking place and Pickett's Charge follows, all up and down the line, there, there are shots being exchanged by both sides, skirmishers trying to keep the other side's heads down. Yeah. And in many cases, shooting each other in the head. Mm. Uh, did this kill a significant number of people? I think it did. Um, and it's always difficult to suss out the casualties that are, you know, incurred during the major attacks mm. and then the ones that are added on at the end. Uh, so, you know, the, the fighting on July 4th, you know, Independence Day, you know, maybe in the hundreds of Union and Confederate soldiers killed or wounded. Uh, so, in many ways, I often say that Gettysburg isn't a three-day battle; it's a four-day battle because mm -hmm. there's still fighting going on on, on the very on July Fourth as the Confederate Army is pulling back. Mm -hmm. And that's the other role of sharpshooters and skirmishers. They're not just used at the beginning of the fight, but they're also used at the end of it, right? So. You know, as soon as you, you are done with the main engagement and you determine who has won the field, well, then the retreating army needs to cover its butt as it gets out. So it, they send out a cloud of skirmishers to, you know, obscure their retreat. And then the, the victorious army has to do the same thing, send out their own skirmishers and sharpshooters so they know where the pursuit needs to take place. And so it's all about that kind of feeling the enemy's position. You know, before you have GPS and satellite and mm -hmm. drones and everything that you can use to determine where the enemy is is and moving, uh, this time you need to have you know people to go out and do it. And skirmishers and sharpshooters are the most effective, uh, either simply finding the enemy position or determining you know how 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 much they're going to fight back against you. So. So, and, and these are not cost-free exercises. You end up with casualties. Mm -hmm. uh, you argue as, as many as 10% of the casualties at Gettysburg could have been incurred not during Pickett's Charge or the First States Fighting, but during this constant skirmishing. Yeah. Um, here in, in Gettysburg, the, the, there's the Shriver House Museum that uh, uh, Nancy Gudmstead uh, runs, and she's been on this sh show before. Uh, which features a civilian house was here at the time, and in the attic there's the evidence of a Confederate sharpshooter mm -hmm. who had knocked uh, a hole in the wall and uh, whose body or, or traces of blood were found on the floor or cartridges left behind. We know there was that kind of sharpshooting going on through all three days, from the houses, uh, mm -hmm. from the streets, uh, from people climbing trees. Uh, you, you write in this essay about the uh, the tendency of soldiers to climb trees to get yeah. a better shot and how much the enemy hated that. Oh, yeah. So the Confederates, they had developed some like sharpshooter battalions by 1863 that were pretty good. And uh, some of them were bold enough to climb trees. And this especially happens over at Culp's Hill, where mm -hmm. the Union Army famously digs in. And they have 
uh, earthworks that are kind of impenetrable from the foot of the hill, but if you can climb up to, to a high branch and then you can look down on them, you can get a whole view of the Union line. Uh, and so they were kind of a menace to the Union soldiers that were dug in. Uh, there's one story where they finally send a guy out to shoot a Confederate out of a tree, and they get him, and of course, you know, he tumbles all the way out, and he's, uh, his head goes into the, a crevice between two rocks, you know, shoulders um, kind of striking the flat portion of the rock, so his body is upside down, and the head wedged into the crevice, and the Union men who killed him said they could not extract the body because it was, it was wedged in so tightly. So, um, you know, it's dangerous to be a sharpshooter uh, to take that role because, you know, if you were doing, doing great in terms of how many men you were killing, you, people were going to start to find a way to take you off your, your pedestal. Yeah, they, they, would, they would fear and resent that. Yeah. Um, let me pull back to one other topic in our remaining five minutes. Uh, you mentioned when we were talking about Barnes Division in the wheat field yesterday, uh, and we've talked about a little bit in terms of Dan Sickles, about Army politics as a, a factor, and you've written about this elsewhere as well. Uh, during the Antietam campaign, famously, or after Second Bull Run, McClellan was put back in charge of the Army, and the boys shout, hooray for little Mac, we've, mm -hmm. we've got our, our man back again. Uh, during the Gettysburg campaign, there's another change of, of leadership, Hooker is out, Meade is in. But you said that uh, Barnes Division is one of the first to hear the rumor that uh, Hooker is out, McClellan is back in. That's right. Talk about that uh, moment. Yeah, well, uh, it occurs during the march to Gettysburg. Uh, the Union Fifth Corps uh, starts at Union Mills, Maryland on June the 30th, and um, they eventually are heading up towards Hanover uh, on July the 1st. Uh, and when they reach Hanover, they get the orders to head towards Gettysburg. And so it's an all-day march of 37 miles. Uh, and sometime after dark, as they're approaching, they get the word that the the change of command has happened. And of course, George Meade had been placed in command on the 28th of June. Uh, and apparently, most soldiers in the 5th Corps didn't know this. Uh, so somehow, a rumor starts that they um, that George McClellan has come back out of retirement and has now been placed in command at this crisis where the state of Pennsylvania is being invaded. And the 5th Corps troops love it. Mm. And the reason for that is, is that the 5th Corps was a unit that was created just prior to the Peninsula Campaign. So their, their first combat experience was with General McClellan. And they, they win this battle called Hanover Courthouse in late May of 1862. And McClellan, you know, true to form, you know, he tries to make this seem like this is the end-all battle, that, that he, he's won this incredible victory. Uh, he, tried, he has a very con condescending and egotistical letter he writes to the War Department about it. But in so doing, he praises the Union Fifth Corps, particularly the division that is eventually commanded by Barnes for what it did at the Battle of Hanover Courthouse. And all this effuse praise that he heaps upon that division makes them love him mm. so much the more. And so when the, when the news comes that McClellan has been uh, put back in command prior to the Battle of Gettysburg, Barnes' men are eager to believe it. Believe it is so, even though it is, is untrue. <laughs> and uh, Fifth Corps, that, that was Fitzgerald Porter's corps at yes. one time. Mm -hmm. And he's also a, a yeah, McClellan close, partisan. Close, yeah. so, so they are very much in the McClellan camp, and they, they, they wish that were the case. 
Um, you've written about some of these things. I mentioned the, uh, the Sharpshooters essay. That appears in a, a publication from Gettysburg National Military Park called The Fate of a Nation, The Third Day at Gettysburg. And I found that online. That mm-hmm. apparently uh, listeners can get that just by, yeah. by going to it. Yeah, right. Yeah, because it was part of the Gettysburg National Military Park Scholarly Seminar Series. Mm-hmm. And so they had uh, a series on uh, one of each day of the battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so July 1st, July 2nd, July 3rd, and then one on the aftermath. And so uh, I have that article from the July 3rd uh, volume. I also have one on July 2nd. It's mm-hmm. about uh, Berdan's sharpshooters mm-hmm. uh, that perform an incredible function on the second day. Uh, so a nice collection of essays that kind of look at some untold topics of, of the Battle of Gettysburg in a kind of new way. Uh, so, yeah, so easily accessible online. That, that's um, I, I'm frequently blamed by listeners to this show for causing them to spend money on books that they... Yeah, that's one uh, you can get for free. Right? So here's one you can get for free. Listeners, go to uh, uh, look up Gettysburg National Military Park and uh, the seminar series, and you can get these two collections or multiple collections of essays, and they, they are uh, uniformly good. The ones I've looked uh, are certainly very good. Uh, you've also written about uh, Army politics, uh, a, a chapter in a book called This Distracted and Anarchical People, New Answers for Old Questions About the Civil War Era North. Uh, that's published by Fordham University Press. Uh, Andrew Slapp is one of the editors. I don't remember the other one. Uh, Michael Smith. And Michael Smith. So. Yeah. Uh, so, listeners, you can read more of uh, Professor Orr's work in that book as well. That one you have to pay for, I'm afraid. Uh, are you working on anything current, uh, staying in this World War II, Civil War era? Um, yeah, well, my next project is a Civil War project. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a few essays coming out, um, one on the Peninsula campaign and newspaper coverage, and then another on what's called D.A. Rock. It's a little rock with inscriptions here at Gettysburg. Mm. Uh, one I, I call it Gettysburg's first headstone. Mm. So there are two articles coming out and I, I'm working on a book that is kind of an expansion of that last article that you mentioned on army politics. So it's going to be uh, a story of the Army of the Potomac and its political factions and how they they vied for supremacy during the course of the war. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to that coming out. Uh, in the meantime, it has been a pleasure talking with you and touring Gettysburg Battlefield with you, and uh, hope we get a chance to do it again sometime. Absolutely. I wouldn't miss it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.